herpetologist, wildlife photographer, and self-confessed lizard nerd, Dr. Sophie Cross, pronouns she, her, has spent the past few years researching and now working to understand the behavior and ecology of vertebrate fauna, specifically reptiles, following mine site restoration in the remote Midwest region of Western Australia. Today, Sophie shares her journey, as well as some great career advice for getting to where you want to be in the wildlife space. Welcome, Sophie. Hello and welcome to It's a Wildlife podcast and blog sharing the great work being done for wildlife conservation worldwide and solving problems for ecologists by ecologists. If you're a fellow wildlifer, whether you're just starting out or you've been about the traps for a while, tune in and let's chat. You're in the right place. So I'm Sophie. I've spent the last couple of years being a huge lizard nerd. I've been researching a lot about reptile ecology and how mine site restoration impacts animal behavior and movement. So I'm really interested in ecology and behavior of wildlife, specifically of reptiles. How exciting. And so what exactly was your doctorate all about? So I've um, finished this up about a year ago now, but I spent about three and a half years working on my PhD thesis, uh, looking at how animals in the Midwest region of Western Australia respond to mindset restoration. So I spent a lot of time out on a site in the Midwest region, a couple of hours east of Geraldton. And I was specifically looking at how uh, animals return to restored uh, habitats and if they actually did re- return and if they did return were they behaving in their normal behaviors um, or were they just kind of passing through these areas and not really using them so broadly it was looking at animal communities but um, I also specifically looked at uh, one specific group of reptiles which is the modulizers which I think basically are the coolest group of animals ever um, mostly because I think it's absolutely fascinating that You can have a group of lizards that is the most diverse in terms of body size of any vertebrate taxa in ever. Uh, So they kind of range from about 20 centimetres in length all the way to the Komodo dragons, which can grow up to about three metres. So it's a huge, huge body range. And so they also have quite different ecologies. And I just find it quite interesting that this group can be so diverse. Absolutely. And so first of all, what kind of minds were you looking at? Second of all, from your research, did that restoration process affect the animals? So I was looking at a um, iron ore mine site. So it was quite an impact to the land. So you've got the open mine pit and then the waste rock dump, which is the result of the, the mining. They basically just uh, label of the stuff taken out of the pit that they're not obviously extracting the ore. Um, and the ultimate goal is to I guess, restore that landscape that they have then put that um, material into. So they aren't necessarily doing the the pit in terms of the restoration. It's more focusing on the waste rock dump. In terms of looking at how animals were using that system, obviously that's quite a fundamentally different landscape to what was in the original system, particularly for the Midwest area, which is generally quite flat. So you've somehow got this huge landform now, which doesn't really resemble that landscape. But I had fantastic results from our research because I had maybe anticipated that that system might be quite different to the reference in terms of the animals that were using it which to a certain extent was true. We uh, did start to see that particular animal groups returned first to those areas. And I should caveat that with it's quite an early stage restoration area at the time. It was about 
I think two or three years post-restoration, so still very early. But we started to see that particularly mammals like kangaroos were starting to come back first, so that may potentially be an issue in terms of overgrazing those areas. But we weren't just seeing that group of animals come back. We were starting to see the the reptiles returning, which was fantastic. Um, and one specific part of my research was looking at how montelizers returned to that area. So I ended up sticking a GPS tracker on the back of a young parenti, which is Australia's largest lizard species, which is super exciting. It was actually fantastic. From those results, we were actually seeing that they were using those areas and not just crossing through them opportunistically like we might have originally thought, because they might not have the resources necessary to promote long-term use. I actually started to see that that reptile had a very distinct home range within that waste rock area as well. So it was actually using that area as a refuge site as well as burrowing. Um, and one super cool observation uh, during that time was that I actually found that animal mating with another parenti next to the burrow in the restoration site, which was super cool for me and super weird for everyone else that I've told how excited I was about watching that. It was also coincidentally the last day of the tracking because that activity knocked off the tracker. But it was really exciting for me to see because it means that those areas must be promoting some kind of uh, long-term return of the animals. So it's not just creating a landscape that might look like a functional habitat on the face of it but actually bringing back a habitat which is promoting that long-term use as well. Absolutely. And of course, parentes are top of their food chain. Is that top predator a good indication of what's happening at lower levels? Yeah, it could could very well be an excellent sign for the restoration because parentes are an apex predator. Uh, they can grow up to about two and a half metres in length and they're pretty common in, in the arid areas. While they have a varied diet and they will pretty much eat anything that they can catch, it does suggest that those areas might also be starting to contain those resources required because while they may have a quite a sizable home range that they're capable of hunting elsewhere and we did actually see from our data that it was still spending quite a considerable amount of time within that restored area so there must be some level of baseline resources which is fantastic to see and if we're getting those larger lizards coming back, then that might be a good sign for the, the smaller species, which potentially might have more specific requirements like needing more refuges. But it might be an indication that as those areas start to become more established, then other animals might be then starting to return to those areas. Absolutely. I think in my experience, a lot of people write it off as sort of greenwashing the aftermath of a mine. But your result must have massive implications for the importance of undergoing that restoration process. Yeah, it would be fantastic to start bringing animals more into the equation of restoration because at the moment animals are still quite broadly overlooked and there's that general assumption that they'll return to their habitat following the return of vegetation, which in practice is not what happens. It's quite difficult to, to bring animals back, particularly if you're not providing artificial habitat or resources. Um, and one of our early papers was specifically to look at how many studies across the world had looked at whether or not animals returned to restored sites, not just in terms of behaviour, but in terms of abundance. So basically any kind of metric where they looked at an animal return to restoration, we compiled that into a database. And it was telling how little attention has been paid to this area because we only found at the time about 100 publications globally that looked at any kind of return of animals to the restored sites. So it's clearly an issue that has been overlooked for quite quite some time now, um, but it's something that definitely needs to be brought more into the equation because they have very critical interactions between the animals and plants. And if you're not bringing back those, those animals who are then performing those essential ecosystem services, an area might look vegetated, but is lacking those key interactions to actually keep that ecosystem functional. 
So it would be fantastic if we could start, you know, looking particularly at the behaviour of animals, which is what we try to focus on. Very interesting because a lot of conservation work almost over-focuses on the fauna side rather than the flora. Do you think there's hope that that might change in future restoration projects thanks to your results? It is definitely an area that is starting to pick up now. People are starting to talk about the importance of looking at animals in restoration. I think, unfortunately, there's still a little bit of a focus on charismatic animals, which is very important research, but over-focusing on one group, you're not looking at other animals and missing key interactions. So from our research, it would be fantastic, particularly in WA, if we could start looking at other groups like the reptiles, which are often overlooked. Just but in WA, we have such an amazing diversity of reptiles. It's an absolute hotspot for lizards and it's basically a land of lizards. So it would be fantastic if we started to, I guess, look at the animals that we have and start to bring more groups into the equation. Absolutely. And so with these restoration processes, are they happening regularly? So restoration is a legislative requirement of, of those, those sites to meet their closure outcomes. But until policy, I guess, is broadened to include more specific mention to animals, that restoration typically hinges on plants, so the, the seeding of the sites and, I guess, monitoring how the plant growth is going. So while restoration itself is not a new concept, particularly for the mining industry, those further considerations are something that really needs to start to be considered in policy as well to become more of a requirement of sites to meet those outcomes for animals and not just a potential side thought. No, completely. And when you're looking at a lot of those smaller species, I'd imagine, that don't get the attention they might need, they're probably going to be far too far away to move back into a restored site themselves on a natural recolonisation. Yeah, that is a, a huge issue for short-range endemic species because uh, while well, the group that I studied has typically quite large home ranges, particularly for the larger body species, a lot of those small reptile species have extremely short home ranges and very specific requirements. So I guess unless you're specifically returning their habitat requirements to the site and then maybe using translocations, they're going to be very unlikely to move back into that site. But then you also run the, the issues where translocations are actually exceptionally difficult. So it's an area that still needs a lot of research too about exactly how we can bring those species back. But it's definitely a consideration for those species that are unlikely to return themselves. Absolutely. And post-PhD, have you continued to work in the field of restoration ecology? Sure. So after my PhD, I did a short-term postdoc with Curtin University who the university that I did my thesis through, trying to continue that research from the thesis to broaden the research to look more into how mining over larger landscapes impacts animals. So not just the restoration, but potentially how things like noise and vibrations and dust might impact animals, because often those impacts radiate across huge landscape levels. And so you might not expect that an active mine site might impact an animal 10 kilometres away, but it's potential that those impacts are actually affecting community dynamics. So the preliminary results from that showed that it is potentially very likely that mining has impacts on communities even, you know, five to 10 kilometres from the actual mine. So we're starting to see how we can mitigate those impacts to cause the minimal disruptions to the native fauna in that area. And my current role is involved in environmental compliance now, so to assess impacts of mining and how we can uh, minimise and manage those um, during the mining process. 
and to put into practice all of this good work that you've done, taking it from the post-mining stage into the pre-mine planning. Yeah, that would be fantastic to see consideration from the outset of the mining because if we're only waiting until the end of the mine process, we may have risked losing our window of opportunity to effectively manage those impacts. So I guess looking at impacts from the outset of the mine and planning for future restoration would be a huge step forward in minimising impacts to environments. Absolutely. Maybe we could take our conversation just a few steps back. Would you like to talk about how you got interested in wildlife and your journey from there to now? Yeah, sure. Not not a super linear journey. I, I've always had a huge interest in, in animals, basically, since I was a kid. All I've ever wanted to do was work with animals. And when I realised that being a scientist was a natural career path, that was basically when I decided that it had to be something to do with science and animals. So I went and did my undergrads at the University of Western Australia in wildlife management. At that stage, I didn't really know exactly what it was about ecology that I was specifically interested in. While I was doing my my degree, I was lucky enough to be able to do some work experience at Perth Zoo. I was on the Australian Fauna Round, and I was just really fortunate that I made friends with a guy who was working on the reptile rounds. At that point, I was kind of a little bit hesitant with reptiles. I wasn't really super keen on snakes or anything like that. And he basically just kept on handing me snakes and to hold and, and kind of forced that fear out. And ended up taking uh, me to look for, for some reptiles throughout the Perth bushlands areas a few times. And it was kind of him who kickstarted my love of reptiles, a chance meeting of one person where I finally found what it was that I was passionate about. And so after my undergrads, I kind of went through a couple of jobs that I wasn't really interested in. At that time, it was a bit of a hiring freeze, so it was difficult to get a job in, in biology. But I just got lucky where there was an opportunity to come up to do a PhD. They did give me a couple of topics. None of them were really that interesting to me. So I was just fortunate enough to be able to pitch a idea to them instead of just looking at plants in the restoration of mine sites maybe start actually looking at animals where my main passion now lies. Absolutely. How incredible. Do you think that that hands-on sort of experience with the reptiles, with the animals themselves would change a lot of hearts and minds when it comes to an impression of reptiles? I definitely think that that fear and stigma around reptiles to a certain extent comes from ignorance because I never really understood a lot about reptiles and I kind of grown up with these ideas that snakes were aggressive and they always chased you and their only goal was to kill you. So those kinds of mentalities, I think, quite harmful to people's views on reptiles. But when I started to actually understand their ecology and their behaviour, these species actually biting is pretty much their last desire. They don't really want to have anything to do with humans if possible. But when I started to actually understand and get involved with various species, that was when I started to shift that perception and they kind of went from a little bit of a fear and unknown to something that was actually really fascinating because there's so many different species and Australia is basically the coolest place to be if you're interested in reptiles too. So huge opportunity to educate the public, try to reduce that stigma around these species. Absolutely. I'd love to step back a moment as well about how difficult it can sometimes be when you're starting out in the industry to find meaningful employment. Yeah, that's probably one of the biggest challenges 
I guess, particularly for wildlife biology. You know, everyone wants to work with animals because animals are super great, but it can be quite competitive to get into the field sometimes. Uh, So I really struggled after my undergrad degree. That was mostly, I think, because at the time there was very limited funding allocated towards environmental sciences uh, and it wasn't a great time all around for that field. Um, There were a lot of hiring freezes and not many places were looking to take people on unless you've uh, been able to build up a bit of experience that can be a lot harder to get into the field too. So unfortunately, the start of my journey was more making things work through other not so relevant jobs. I ended up being in a warehouse for, for a little while, which was enough to get by but it wasn't wasn't what I wanted to be doing obviously and wasn't wasn't my field I think the main driver for me that helps I guess not just cement where I wanted to be so that understanding of what it was that really drove me but also what helped me I guess further that career was to go back and do some more research to become get more specific skills in in this area that I, I found out that I was really passionate about But that's not necessarily the path that you need to take to get into the field. I know a lot of people who have gone through other avenues, like going through consulting companies or getting experience in various other environmental groups. And I think probably the best way to achieve that, the biggest advice that I would give is to basically volunteer as much as you can with as many groups as you can so I went, uh, I volunteered with a few different wildlife uh, rehabilitation uh, groups, went on research trips, and I think it was mostly going through and getting that experience, which ultimately helped me actually land a job of my own in the end. So there's a huge amount of opportunities available. I think biggest advice is just that you have to look for them and put yourself out there because, you know, as as, as difficult it can be, you're not going to get that job unless you really try for it. Let's talk a little bit about your experience as a woman in STEM. How have you found it? I think I've been pretty lucky throughout my career in that I've just worked with a fantastic group of people where there's, I've, I've not really had a lot of that stigma of being a female in the research field, but I've, I've just always been presented with advice to go out and seek these opportunities that have helped further me along in that career and particularly the people that I worked with throughout my thesis particularly my primary supervisor he was exceptionally encouraging and always um, supported my developments and research growth and told me about opportunities when they came up whether or not that was helping out with someone's research or giving lecture or going to a conference and I guess talking about my research So I think that for me, the the hardest part to overcome was more my own self-confidence because when I started out, I was deathly afraid of anything to do with presenting. But I guess all of those opportunities and and all of that encouragement was ultimately fantastic for me because now I actually really love giving presentations and it's not got that same level of anxiety. I know that it's not always the case for women in science, but I have had fantastic luck and a lot of support, which has been super amazing. Absolutely. (laughs) And so what kind of advice would you give to people who might just be starting out or trying to amplify themselves within the space of wildlife science and conservation? Try to involve yourself in as many opportunities as you can, be comfortable with and anything that interests you, just give it a go, whether or not that's, you know, helping out someone with their research or going and even watching someone give a presentation on, on their research because I know that a lot of people have actually found their 
their interest by just hearing somebody else talk about what they're excited about, which has kind of kickstarted them and to be like, oh, actually, I'm really interested in this space. Maybe I'll go and research that further. But I think the best thing that anyone can do is just find what it is that interests you and just learn about it and find opportunities related to that to help, I guess, further your interests. Um, And often those are the ways that you make connections and that's how you actually end up getting positioned in that field too because I've had a lot of chance meetings with with various um, people and researchers um, over the years which have just arisen just completely out of the blue which have uh, helped kickstart my career and get me to where I am. Absolutely. If people were interested in finding out a little bit more about the wonderful work that you've done or keeping keeping up with your adventures, what would be the best way for them to do that? Well, I'm a, a huge nerd for taking photos of, of reptiles. Most, most of the time people will find me in a patch of dirt in the bushlands just taking endless photos of the same reptile. But I have a huge passion for wildlife photography, particularly reptile photography. I put a lot of those photos on my Instagram. My handle for that is at Squamata Out. So Squamata are the group of reptiles and this name arose because I had this light bulb moment in the bush that you know, sun's out, guns out thing. Well, reptiles like sun, uh, sun's out, schemata out was my nerd moment. So that's where I put most of my stuff now. And uh, we've also done a lot of work in terms of the actual written research space, uh, which uh, a lot of our, our papers, if you're interested in the more in-detailed, high-level um, science of, of the work, they're all available online on Google Scholar. We'll definitely provide links to those in the show notes below. So make sure you check out all of the beautiful reptile photos. Was there anything else that you wanted to mention or acknowledge before we finish? I think they, I'd just like to finish up by acknowledging our funding partners who were a massive help throughout my, my thesis. They helped support the research uh, that I did. One of them was the ARC Centre for Mindsight Restoration, where I did my research in collaboration with Curtin University, also Curtin University Behavioural Ecology. And I also was very lucky to be able to be successfully funded by the Holsworth Wildlife Research Endowment, who were also a huge help in purchasing equipment needed for our studies. I guess we should finish off today by thanking you so much so for coming on and talking all about the wonderful work that you've been doing to conserve reptiles and other animals on these restoration sites. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for another episode of It's a Wildlife. If you've been inspired by our discussion or have something to share, please get in touch. Leave us a review or share the love with your network. We'll chat soon.